Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for what you've done on our behalf. Lord, I, I thank you so much that you were not only the, the propitiation, the, the payment for all of us, but Lord, that you also resurrected and you are seated in the heavenlies. Lord, in victory. Lord, this morning as we come here together as a church to worship you and to, to dive into the goodness of your gospel, Lord, I pray that you would give us open hearts. Lord, I, I, I pray that we would have ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that you would most of all receive the glory. Thank you for this morning. I thank you for this body of believers. And I thank you for the humble privilege to serve. Lord, give me the ability to communicate clearly the truth in your word that you've revealed to me. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we trust you in your name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> turns out, real short sermon this morning, because JT done preached it all for communion. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you guys are excused. It was great to see everybody this morning. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, um, what a beautiful way to, to take communion, that we get to sit there and remember the goodness of the gospel. And, and church, that's what we get to do this morning. We've been walking through the book of John for what, like 10, huh, 60 weeks? Okay, so a long time. We've been walking through it and we're coming to an end. It's getting close, but stick with us because the last little bit is the part that should just make you smile. The last little bit is what gives us encouragement and hope. Not that the rest of it didn't, but when it comes to the new covenant and Jesus Christ and who he is and who we are in him, this is where John, as the writer, just does a beautiful little job of kind of tying in a neat little bow for us. So, if you guys can remember all the way back to last week, I know it's a lot to ask, <laughs> like specifically even for myself, uh, it's a hard thing to remember what happened last week. Um, but last week, JT preached on the resurrection, about uh, the importance of the story being told. He even like, brought in the, the whole Hebrew and the Greek and how we would typically tell a story and how the Hebrews would typically tell a story and why that's important to understand. Uh, he talked about the different uh, like, accounts, so the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John kind of on his own and how there are appearing to be differences, but they're not really differences. It's just how they told stories to, to proclaim the general idea that they're, the writer is desiring us to, to take home, right? Uh, he, he talked about uh, even just like the small details of like a, a woman being at the well, um, or not the well, sorry, going back there, a uh, woman at the, at the grave site. He talked about the grave robbers and how that was actually like a thing, right? Uh, he talked about uh, the, the weightiness of the resurrection in regards to our faith and why it's so important that we understand the fullness of what the resur resurrection means. And so this morning as we continue through John's uh, account uh, of Christ, we're going to continue diving into that beautiful truth. We're going to continue diving into the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Last week, if you remember, JT's sermon kind of ended, or the passage that he was reading on, kind of ended relatively abruptly. And this is verbatim, because he sent me a, a dialogue of, or a sheet of his sermon. And it says, I kind of love how our passage ends today. They all just went home. They saw this crazy thing, didn't know what was really going on, so they just went home. You know why I love it? Because it's all of us. These men and women are us. They aren't heroes. They weren't all that special. They are confused and scared and lost, as the rest of us would have been. So now, let's turn to John 20, verse 11 through 18. And we're going to pick up the story where JT left off. I'll give you a second to turn there. But Mary stood outside the tomb, or stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means father. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So that's the passage that we're going to be diving in, and I am excited. I'm a little bit nervous because typically I like about JT in his graciousness gives me about five weeks to kind of prep a sermon because that's typically about how long I need. Now I have taken all of that up until Wednesday in studying the passage and prepping for this morning, and on Wednesday evening as I continued to read it was this is wrong. This isn't the focus. And I deleted and restarted. <laughs> so I'm a little bit nervous about how well I'll communicate this morning. I am not nervous about what the Lord taught me in this passage. That part I am pumped about and I am confident about. Okay. Uh, I'd like to start this morning with just talking about who was Mary Magdalene. She's talked about, I think, more than any other disciple in scripture. She's a pretty like prominent character in all of the Gospels. So what do we know about her, right? Mary Magdalene was a woman, okay? Now, guys, stick with me. This seems kind of like, you know, like duh, Tony, right? She was obviously a woman. And it might seem like a ridiculous point to make. But remember that this story happened in a culture very, very different from our own. The reaction of the apostles in Luke, Luke 24, 11, if those who are flipping through the Bible want to look it up, Luke 24, 11, it said, 
the, the reaction of the apostles to what the woman had to say about the uh, resurrection was typical of the time. In Luke 24, 11, it says, these, worms, or these words seem to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. In first century Jewish culture, and I think JT alluded to it last week, women weren't even allowed to be witnesses at a trial. Because the perspective was that they were hopelessly unreliable. So that's the perspective that this culture has of women. And Mary is coming to the disciples and saying, Jesus is alive. I've seen him. And they said, that's, that's a lie. We all saw him die. So just kind of let that sit with you. And that's why it's important to point out that Mary Magdalene was a woman. Because of the reaction that we see from the disciples in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's important to, see, to understand that reaction, right? And the other thing that's fascinating, at least to myself, as I studied this, <laughs> all the Gospels account Mary Magdalene as being the one who saw Jesus. Now, let's just logically work through this. If women were hopelessly unreliable, and you were trying to start a faith or a movement, why in the world would you use the worst witness possible to, to base your faith on? The report of a hopelessly unreliable woman, she saw him first. He's alive. Now, I'm pretty sure that even, even in our sin, when we choose to lie, we don't base it off of the most unreliable source, right? We try to throw a little bit, something like, well, but he said, and it's like, okay, well, that's a little more believable. Yet in every one of the accounts, it's the same. To the embarrassment and possibly shame of the apostles, what they proclaim every time is, Mary saw him at the tomb. Okay? We know that she was a disciple or a, a devout follower of Jesus Christ. In studying the, the Gospels, we know that Jesus cleansed her, cleansed her of seven demons. Now, I'm just going to, this is a, a little bit of, uh, what's that word? My own perspective. Yeah, we're just going to go with that. Huh? Conjecture. There we go. Um, it could have literally been seven demons. And from what I've learned with studying the Word of God, typically when it says a certain thing, it means a certain thing, right? So we're going to go with the fact that it was actually seven demons. On the flip side, the representation of the number seven in historical Jewish culture was seven was the number of fullness or completion. And again, how JT talked and talked about the Greek way of thinking and the Hebrew way of thinking, they typically talk with I want you to grasp this general idea. And so I'm telling you this story or these details so you understand this part of the story. So when they say that Mary Magdalene had seven demons that Jesus had cast out, it's the number of completion. The point is Mary Magdalene was a totally depraved person. She is referred to in the other gospels as the great sinner. Okay, and that... That should be kind of an important fact as 
we by faith believe in the gospel and we also understand our total depravity. And then we look at the beautiful restored relationship that Jesus had with Mary Magdalene. Okay? Ooh. She was a woman of status and we get this from Luke 18 or 8, 1 through 3. She had wealth, property, and status. And Luke 1, 8 through 3, it, it talks about her financially supporting Jesus in his ministry in Galilee. And so her coming to the well and saying to the gardener, like, go get him. I'll go put him in a place where I know he's buried. Like, it's not just this lady coming up and saying, come on, just give it to me. Like, she has the resources, the ability, and the capability to get Jesus' body and go lay him in a different tomb. Okay? So she's a woman of, of those characteristics. And we know from the Gospels that she was a witness to the crucifixion, the burial, and probably most famously, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now let's get back in to John. Now that we have a little bit of background. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. We'll just pause there. Weeping. It's the same word that is used when it talks about Jesus wept. It's the same Greek word, at least as far as my research showed. It means she was crying loudly. She was deeply, deeply sorrowful that her Savior, her teacher, was not in the tomb. She was so overcome by sorrow and loudly crying that even as she stooped down to look inside the tomb, she sees two angels sitting there. Now again, let's pause. Two angels. We know from the other Gospels that these angels... Um, Matthew 28, 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These are battle-hardened men. It's talking about the two Roman soldiers that they placed outside of the tomb to make sure that no grave robbers came and stole the body so that they could conjure up this lie that, see, he rose again. So we see that from the account of Matthew. And, and so they place these two Roman guards there. And when the angels show up, these guys, battle-hardened men, men who have seen very atrocious things and been able to continue on, fight the battle, do the, do the deed that need done, they pass out. They are so overwhelmed with fear that they pass out. Okay, so these are these, these angels. They're sitting in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus was laying. Mary stoops in, she sees him, and just continues on in her, in her grief. Now, it, it, if she did have such a reaction of fear where she passed out, John doesn't even think about mentioning it. Okay? There is no indication that she even recognizes them as angels. It's possibly due to the depth of grief. Um, but as she stoops down, she's mourning. The angels go, woman, why are you weeping? Now, this is in contrast to the other three gospels, where every time they say, he's risen. 
the triumphant proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. In every other gospel, that's the account. Yet here, John and John, we see that woman or that Mary Magdalene bends down and they say, Woman, why are you weeping? In the face of the grief, the angels do not bombard her with the good news. They ask her a question that can lead to a healing word. Mary's answer in verse 13, let's go ahead and read that. It says, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary's answer in verse 13 shows that she is totally focused on the fact that Jesus' body is missing from the tomb. He is still her Lord, even though he is dead. Her loyalty is still 100% fixed upon him. And saying she does not know where they have put him, it actually seems that she thinks Joseph of Arimathea has moved Jesus' body to a more permanent site. It's kind of the deduction that scholars have come to. That, that, that was her assumption that, okay, he's moved him. Where did you put him? I want Jesus back. I'll go put him in a more permanent site that I know where he is instead of you guys taking all these liberties. Again, in this dialogue, her answer once again gives the angels a perfect opportunity like a softball lobbed up for them to say, he's alive, right? But their perfect opportunity is interrupted by the appearance of Jesus himself. Now, it says in verse 14 that Mary turns to see Jesus. We don't know if perhaps she simply sent somebody standing behind her. We don't know that if it was, if, if it was that or if uh, she just simply, you know, how you can kind of feel when someone's awkwardly standing behind you. It could have been that. Or it could have been that as she was talking, Jesus just pff, appeared, right? All things are, are possible, but... Nonetheless, she recognized that someone was behind her. And she turns around, and she doesn't recognize him. She assumes that he is Joseph of Arimathea's gardener, tending to the, tending to the plot of land. Being the man with knowledge, she goes, where'd you put him? Where have you taken my Lord? She had not been able to pick up on the clues of the two angels... The gravestone being rolled away, the face cloth being folded and the linens being undone. She didn't pick up on any of that. And now she's looking directly at the object of her concern and she still doesn't get it. Where is he? Where is my Lord? Now, to give Mary a little bit of credit, we do see in the other Gospels, like Stranger on the Road to Emmaus in Matthew, right? Apparently, his glorified body was a little different from his earthly one. Because people typically struggle in recognizing the person of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Okay, so to give her a little bit of credit where credit is due, apparently he looked a little bit different, <laughs> okay? Um, but nonetheless... Let's continue in verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing to be the garden, him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So in this moment of Jesus talking with Mary, we see Jesus perfectly aware of her condition. He knows exactly the emotional state she's in. And he asks her, woman, why are you weeping? Again, Jesus knows. But then he asks her another question. He says, whom are you seeking? Now, something that I found incredibly interesting and I think super valid, this is the same question that Jesus asked in John 1, 35 through 38. When John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, and the disciples that were with John the Baptist leave and they start following Jesus, and Jesus turns to them and says, whom are you seeking? It's a question that reveals the heart. It's a question that, that dives into the, the innermost part of what, what are you desiring from me? And Mary hears this question and she goes, okay, where have you laid him? And he's going, Mary, you're still not getting it. And he lets her finish her question and he says, Mary. Now again, John 10, 3 through 4. We've been walking through this gospel. John 10, 3 through 4, a parable that Jesus tells. To him, the gatekeeper opens, talking about the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by the name, by their name, and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. <laughs> Church, how amazing is that? Now, I looked it up because I'm like, nowadays, when a guy owns some sheep or cattle or whatever, they're in their own little plot. Well, that's not how it was back then. It cost a lot to make a fence. So people would make a fence, and then all the shepherds would put multiple different owners' sheep into that same plot. So when the shepherd would come up, it wasn't joking when they'd say, you know, sheep come here, however they said that. And that shepherd's sheep would hear that shepherd's voice and know, that's my guy. And they'd all follow. And he'd lead them out into the green pastures. <laughs> How beautiful is that? He goes, Mary. And all of a sudden it clicks. That's my teacher. She hears him and she turns. And can you just imagine the emotional like, roller coaster of that? Like she's crying so hard she doesn't recognize angels that made soldiers pass out. And now she's turning and she's going, you're alive? Like, I'm not much for emotion like that. That would be devastating. Devastating. 
She finally can see through her tears of sorrow, through her grief, and she sees her teacher, and all of a sudden, those tears of sorrow become tears of incredibly confused joy. And she's clinging to him, whether it's grabbing his feet, holding on his arm, or just hugging him like a son of a gun, she is there and she is holding on to Jesus. Because, oh my goodness, you're alive. Let's continue in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. I am, oh, I lost, uh, yeah. Father, to my God and your God. So honestly, when I read this, I was like, really, Jesus? You couldn't have just let her like hug you for a hot second? (laughs) He's instantly like, yo, time out. Stop hugging me. Stop holding me so hard. For I haven't ascended to the Father yet. Now, initially, it kind of seems like Jesus is being a little bit of a jerk. But he's not. Because listen to what he says to her. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Church, this is the part that for the past three weeks I've totally missed. Until Wednesday evening I was reading it and I was like, duh. Maybe the words of Christ would be kind of the point of this entire message, right? This is the best part of this section of verses. This is the the beautiful, resounding good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important for us to understand the resurrection. We desperately, desperately needed him to be the propitiation, the, the sacrifice to turn our condemnation into blessing. We needed that. We needed his death on the cross. But if he just died, that was not enough for us. In dying, he fulfilled the old covenant. He fulfilled the law. He lived it perfectly and then was a perfect sacrificing atonement for the old covenant. But his resurrection, church, that's what brings in the new. His resurrection is what gives us the life, what gives us the hope. He died to be that payment. He rose again to conquer the power of sin and death. He is now seated in the heavenlies as our mediator, as our eternal high priest, one that has no end, so he can be mediating for us for eternity. That's why the resurrection is important, because without the resurrection, he's just another good man that died. But he died and then rose again, conquering the power of sin and death so that he could institute and implement and be the guarantor of a new covenant. At least according to Hebrews, that's what it says. So he's now seated in the heavenlies in victory, and he's calling us by name. Like, mind blown. He tells Mary not to cling to him, And the reason is because he's still on the move. 
He's not seated in the heavenlies by the right hand of the Father in perfect glory yet. He's saying, look, I still got places to be, people to call. Stop holding on to me. But I've got something for you to do, Mary. Go and tell my brothers. Church, that is the first time in the Gospel of John he calls the disciples brothers. Why could for the first time in the gospel he call them brothers? Because he rose again. Because he instituted a new covenant. Because the relationship had changed. Now the disciples were no longer men who needed a mediator. They had a mediator and the relationship had changed between them and the Father because of what Jesus Christ had done. They were now co-heirs. They had now received the beauty of the goodness of the gospel. They were now marked as his. According to scripture, for those who are found by faith in Jesus Christ, we are now seated in the heavenlies with the Son. Which means that the relationship has not changed from God the Father looking at us through the rose-tinted Jesus glasses, but it means that we are seated in the heavenlies with him as fellow co-heirs and as fellow co-heirs when the Father looks at us seated in the heavenlies with Jesus that he is not wondering when the next time we screw up is he is well pleased in us because we are in Christ. He is looking at us from a position of are you in Adam or are you in Jesus? If you are in Jesus, I am well pleased Our fellowship is fully restored and is flourishing. Or if you are an Adam, you are condemned to hell. That's how he looks at us. So the fact that Jesus says, go and tell my brothers is a little bit of a big deal. They are in me now and I have instituted a new covenant. And because I have done that, They are reconciled. Uh, I wrote this nicely, so I'm going to actually find that. The relationship has been reconciled. The fellowship has been restored. Church as a believer, is that not some of the best news? Because I don't know about the rest of you in this room, but for me, pretty much my entire life I lived with trying to be enough for the Father. And it showed even in my relationship with my own Father, I was trying to be enough It's not about being enough because Jesus Christ has done that for me on my behalf. And now I get to walk in the freedom and the life and the hope that comes through believing in that he is who he says he is. And he has done what he said he was going to do. And now I get to walk in that new life. He has given me a new heart, a new life, transferred me from one kingdom to another. Like, Like that's some good news, church. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to him, or to her, sorry, she's a woman, right? We know that Jesus appears to the disciples who are sitting behind a locked door for fear of the Jews. 
But we know that she goes to them and she's like, I, I've seen him. He's alive. He is risen. And he told me to tell you these things. The teacher called you brothers, guys. Now, maybe they didn't all get that right off the bat, but like, that's still pretty amazing. First Peter 1, 3 through 4. This is one that JT ended with last week. And I mean, it's great. I'm glad he used it. I was a little like, come on, that was my verse. <laughs> but the Bible's for all of us, right? First uh, Peter 1, 3 through 4. If you guys could turn there. Because now as, as we understand what the, or are beginning, I guess, to understand what the resurrection means, why we can never graduate from the goodness of the gospel. Let's read this verse in light of everything that we talked about this morning. Verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus Christ. We, we took communion here, you know, it's... Thank you for dying. Thank you for sacrificing your body, washing me in your blood. But church, this is why we take it. Because it's remembering that he was not only the, the sacrifice I desperately needed, that he washed me and cleansed me in his blood, but it's also the remembrance that he has done so much more than just be enough of a payment. For those who by faith believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, we attain this. And to sit there and go, well, that's all stuff in the future, <laughs> right? Well, that, that's way out there. It's what our position is. I'll use my marriage as an example. My position is that I'm Victoria Lynn Percy's husband. Well, guess what? That means I function in that way. I'm not a 60-40 there. So if Christ is calling me as his son, if Christ is calling me like Jesus or JT said this morning, like we're justified. We've been sanctified as, as holy in our position. Now that doesn't mean that we walk a perfect life of holiness now, does it? What it does mean is that as we continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding, our pursuit of godliness does change the way that we live. It changes the way that we function with one another. And then to, to realize, like, forgive as you've been forgiven. Well, he's forgiven me completely. Church, imagine if we walked in a way that was in direct correspondence of our position. Our position defines and dictates who we are. It doesn't mean we walk it out perfectly, but it does mean that we remember who we are in Jesus Christ. Like it says in, in 1 Peter that we be people who look in the mirror and remember who we are, not people who look in the mirror and forget exactly what we look like. That's why we need to renew our minds in the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of scripture because it should define how we function with one another, how we function as a church. It's why it's intoxicating when an unbeliever sees someone 
who walks in submission to the authority of Christ, when they see that new life, it's not because we're amazing. We're scared. Sometimes we mess up lots of times, at least for myself. But I get to point not only myself at times, but other people to the goodness of the gospel. Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he said he was going to do. He has instituted a new covenant that we now get to walk in newness of life. He's given us a new heart. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And he's changing us according to Philippians 1.6 into the image of Jesus Christ until the day of his return. That is who we are. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, we would love to talk to you about that because it's not 613 laws. That's not what the Bible is. It's not what this relationship is. It's not about showing you how crappy you are. It's about showing you how good Jesus Christ is. The redeeming power that he can talk to a woman named Mary Magdalene the great sinner, and say, Mary, you are mine. Now go and tell people the good news. Like that should be so encouraging for us as a church that it's not about how bad I am, it's about how good Jesus Christ is. There's still, still definitely need to reconcile still need to apologize for sin, still need to pursue godliness and pursue being holy, absolutely. But it doesn't change who I am in Jesus because Jesus said it's finished. That's the goodness of the gospel, church. That's why it's important that we understand his sacrifice on the cross was half of the good news. The other half is that he raised again. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, uh, I, I pray that your word would make its home in our hearts, that we would, whether it's in our own personal study or hearing a sermon on Sunday, that we would hear the truth of your gospel and we would glorify and praise your name because you are worthy. Lord, thank you for sacrificing yourself. Thank you for walking faithfully and obediently so that you could be my payment. But Lord, thank you for raising again so that I could walk in newness of life as I understand more of who you are and what you've done on my behalf. Lord, I thank you for conquering the power, power of sin and death. and I thank you for the new life and the new heart that I can walk with my head held high because I am in your son. Lord, I pray that we would understand this truth. I pray that we would continue to be humble and teachable and never feel like we understand the goodness of the gospel fully because, Lord, it, it's a gift that literally keeps on giving. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. And, and Lord, I just pray that you be glorified this morning. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we trust you in your name. Amen.